Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, Sam, Jory, Tara, the Reverends Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. Uh, right now, it's just kind of sitting there, other than for Zencaster. But we have plans. We got plans. We will use your money. We'll use it good. <laughs> Use it. Use it good. Uh, if you want to add to our, our pile of money, if you've got five or more dollars a month to spare and would like to help us do fun things like make new and different merch, go on the road. Right now, those are really the only two things we got. Yeah, we I mean, those are do, good things. They are good things. We still have to fund the road trip. I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like exactly. Um, maybe what we can do is we can schedule road trips to visit our mortal nemeses throughout the United States. Yes. That's what we got to do. Yeah. Go to Michigan. Uh, with like some fun stops in between so that we don't go bananas. But That's right. That's right. I well, most of our mortal nemeses wouldn't know what to do with us anyway. That's true. You know? <laughs> we, I've never spoken to you before, but we think you're the incarnation of Satan. Yes, That's true. I don't know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> we don't think anybody's the incarnation of Satan. We just think there's deeply misguided people in the world. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just to clarify, we do have some things that are upcoming on the Patreon that if you are, if you're interested in subscribing, these are fun things that are going to happen. And the more money you give me now, the more I can justify the time I'm going to put into it. Like getting access to all of the back catalog on the Patreon feed, having um, reflections from both me and Ethan on each episode. Yeah playlists mm -hmm. so you don't have to like go through the episodes that are a slog but instead you can go right to the bat story if you want it like all that kind of good stuff that will make <laughs> make the podcast more accessible is up and coming but only if i can get enough money to justify spending time on it <laughs> so that's a fun thing if you want to give us money for that uh you also get access to the patron only podcast feed as previously mentioned which has bonus content and the patreon only podcast that ian and i record which is called pillow talk um this past episode the one that dropped on friday we talk about the newest star that the hubble has detected and the size of the universe and so that's a really fun one Ooh. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of a lot of good content in that one. There's a lot of asides because we cannot stay focused, and there's a lot of singing because we cannot stay focused. But we do actually talk about what we're supposed to talk about, so that's a good one. So if you'd like to do any of that, you can join our supporters over on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/wtiap. If you are not in the position to support us financially, there are still ways you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just keep listening, because that is good as well. That's true. And now, on to the show. One, two, five, nine! Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. So, Ethan, how was your week this week? That was okay. Yeah. Busy. You're finishing up uh, 
uh, stuff for the semester, just a couple more weeks of the semester, and and uh, I'll be happy when it's over. Mm. It's not it's not been my favorite semester. I'm I'm done with I just want to be done with coursework. Yeah, and, and just have it be no more. But um, and so I've been you know getting work done and getting reading done and trying to do stuff for this class I'm TAing and it's it's been it's been nonsense it's been nonsense what what's really the pain in the butt for me Joe is like I I really just want to start working on dissertation right but I really don't have time like I have to my next thing is just just get ready for comps and so I really can't work on I mean I could always work on dissertation in the background but that's that's a lot yeah and yeah and and things are evolved like some of the different things I want to do are changing in some interesting ways and you know and and uh things are expanding or or whatever like I'm thinking about um the presence of Christ you know and 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 the way the presence of Christ like like the experience of Christ's real presence like inculcate sanctification and stuff like that and like I just think that's an interesting angle and so I'm like thinking about that with some of these theologians that I've talked about on the podcast before like I'm still interested in those in, in those folks like Jackie Wes and right. Dorothy, Dorothy Zola and Forsyth and stuff but uh, I read for my one class that I'm in my it's uh, it's like methods of methods theory theology in religion and secularity something like that um, we just read a ton of, you know, classic texts and a ton of, it, it's, it's a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, we read like William James and, mm. and, um, uh, Durkheim and different, different people. Um, but we just read, um, this is, this might be something you're interested in actually. We, so we just read two books over the last two weeks. One of the books, this is the second time I've read it. And and it and the second time around has been really cool in light of some of these other books that, okay. that we've been reading in this class. But uh, last week, this week, and then actually this coming week make up like these three books that um, two of them I've already read. So like I've read technically I've read all three of them before now. These three books have really like changed some of the ways in which I've like thought about religious studies and. Uh, I really see these books as really helpful for like theology people and, and religious studies people. One of them is this book called Provincializing Europe. Ooh, okay. And it's by a, a, a Bengali um, historian named, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the first name possibly incorrect, uh, Dipesh Chakrabarti, this is his name. Okay. And he um, you know, he's this historian and social theorist and writes about um he, he specifically is interested in like south asian and bengali like history um but but he's he's trained in europe and stuff like that but in this in this book he he sort of writes about what would it mean to treat europe the way europe treats all other cultures mm. and so like you know th this is fairly straightforward like people who are in social sciences in particular or the humanities like we are like we understand this pretty well like 
European and Western thinking is is often the baseline universal, and mm-hmm. then everything else is a derivative of it. And that's how it's treated. That's how we are trained to sort of treat it, even by accident. And um, and and Chakrabarty's like, what do we? What what would we do if if we could do some work to to treat Europe like it's just one other culture among other cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so he kind of gets at that question by working through a series of essays about history and time and agency in you know and debate and all of these different things in like bengal like like in india hmm. and and sort of juxtaposes them against some of these other more western european categories and stuff um it's an interesting book what's really and let me let me tell you the most interesting thing about it because it connects them to some other stuff um okay. He's got this chapter on history where he's he's working with Marx a little bit and and he sort of teases out this thing that he sees sort of underneath the surface in Marx where Chakrabarty calls it history one and history two. Hmm. Um, this these aren't Marx's this isn't Marx's language. This is Chakrabarty's language and Chakrabarty's like. History one is is sort of understood as the history of capital. And so we understand history or we discuss history, we write history or we teach history with the development of industry and wealth and money and all of the things that go into that as the sort of central locus. Right. Um we we and then we live in history one as well kind of concretely and one of the and and he's like the concrete way we live in history one is by is the way in which we understand the work day or the work week or you know like like we judge time based on when we go to work and when we go to sleep yeah you know and 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 he's like and this is history one and this is broadly sort of western the tale of Western history. And, and we, we do our best as historians and just regular people are trained to see all of human history kind of within this realm, this sort of capital realm, uh, enlightenment with a capital E, you know, all of the things that sort of can, are, are, are in that soup, right? Mm-hmm. And for Chakrabarti, history too would be uh, the lived would be lived histories like like human histories that do not center those things sort of within them and and for chakrabarty like history two uh is what sort of ruptures history one um Mm. and and really does some interesting things with possibly with liberation he's not he's not necessarily interested in that he's a historian but like but it ruptures into history one as being both the that which um, sustains the human beings in history one and challenges the narratives of history one. So like, for example, a history one wants to tell the story of humanity as the self-sufficient little worker bee. Mm-hmm. And all of humanity can be summed up in, in our ability to 
labor and produce, right? History too has rooms, the hist history too includes things like creation myths or, or like uh, a, a, a kind of perhaps nonlinear, but more like, you know, the, the kind of stuff of human life that can't be sort of caught up or resists being caught up in the work week or the calendar, you know, or, or these other things. And the thing for Chakrabarti is, is like history too is concretely what makes us human in like a full way. And, and surprisingly enough, without history too, um, human beings can't actually engage in history one well at all. Right. I find all that really compelling because one of the things he ends up saying is for social scientists or students of religion or, or scholars of history or whatever, history too, the history too paradigm is the paradigm that allows historians and scholars to tell the story of humanity with divinity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. because history too allows for non-human rational actors. Right. I really find that interesting. It's just a kind of a cool thing. Like I'm like, huh, yeah, I could dig that. Like, like it's just, it, it opens up this sort of interesting, you know, kind of way of thinking of like, like, like a challenge to like a typical history, one way of thinking about human life. And it opens it up in this really kind of interesting way. Right. Like, uh, the the histories of say Native American spirituality are sort of wrapped up in a history to paradigm, and it, and that is and that paradigm resists the story of the United States that the United States tells about Native Americans. Right. Yeah. See what I'm saying? It's not just a counter history; mm -hmm. it's a history that happens in parallel that that resists the history one telling. Um, yeah yeah right. well and not even limited to history right like that that mindset for indigenous peoples who have who have struggled to like maintain their culture they maintain that mindset right mm -hmm. and we see that with indigenous cultures globally too i mean i think it's um it's part of the thing that comes from uh you know the the slightly racist joke not even slightly the yeah the racist joke that people tell about uh you know like african american time or black time or oh, uh, sure. indian time where like uh yeah people don't show up on time that's not really a consideration of theirs they can't keep an appointment and like on the one hand what a terrible thing to say why are, why are we saying that on the other hand why are uh enlightenment minded europeans so focused on the exact hour of the clock you know yeah um it like it just makes you this kind of like fact of of living life together makes you think of just the different perspectives that are still living like it's not a past thing that we've evolved past not that you were saying that just that i feel the need to mm -hmm. say it all the time yeah of course of course um but i do i find i just found that just really compelling i still do um because i think it's a it's a an interesting mode of thinking not just for like indigenous and black and brown, you know, folks kind of within empire. Right. But like, mm -hmm. but like in another key, it's also a really interesting way of including theology in religious studies. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
because then theology in this mode might be understood as a product of history too Mm -hmm. right you know and and religious studies like a typical religious studies framework typical anyway might be understood as a part of of history one and Chakrabarty doesn't like he doesn't he's not like history one is bad like he doesn't really say it like that um he he's just points out that like like capital and the way in which it's caught up in kind of a a, a western framework like like is so powerful that it that it demands its own history um Mm -hmm. yeah just because of the way in which it wraps all of the west and ultimately globalizes and as well um uh, uh the way in which we act and and behave and see ourselves as actors in the world and he's kind of like you know history one without history one we, we we would be pretty hard pressed to find like cures for like the measles you know because his, his history one allows for more possibilities like that because science like the scientific method can only exist within history one yeah, I mean, what I was going to say is that, like, well, there were inoculations for smallpox in indigenous cultures in Africa before the Enlightenment came around. So, like, there are – I I want to con- consistently push back against sure. the idea that, like, medical science is only available to us via Western Enlightenment thinking because we both know that's wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. But, like, history one does allow us to, like – more efficiently achieve these things and and probably to spread knowledge more spread information more efficiently right yeah i mean it makes me think of um when i took thermodynamics there's uh thermodynamics you're trying to understand like the movement of particles within a closed system because that's the only way your laws of thermodynamics are going to work uh, so you are excluding things left and right in the system in order to be able to like mathematically describe the system accurately. And that is really indicative of how the scientific method and kind of enlightenment thinking works in general. It says, let's look at the thing that we can define. Let's figure out how the thing that we can define works. And then let's kind of export the thing that we can define onto everything else in the world. And that's how you go from like, hey, here's an equation that describes how things fall to people saying that, oh, well, there's no such thing as uh, anything beyond what you can see and observe. You know, it's this kind of iterative process idea that you can, as long as you're defining your boundaries correctly, right? As long as you're defining your system well enough, then you can explain anything. But but we miss that initial step where we are defining boundaries and kind of by definition, there's going to be something outside of your boundaries. Right, right. Yes, I agree. I'm with you. But anyway, that's that's what I have to say about provincializing Europe. Um, uh, I just find it really interesting. The the other book that we read to, like this week, um, it was a book called Acute Melancholia. Mm. Um, and I actually read it. I've talked briefly with you about it, like, like my very first semester in the program, because we mm. read it then. It's a it's like a collection of essays from a professor at Harvard who studies medieval Christian mystics. 
Mm. And um and and she's sort of sort of in the same line of Chakrabarty, like wants to make the claim that the medieval, you know, uh, is it, it occupies. It's not just that we can go back to the medieval way of thinking and find fresh ideas, but like the medieval way of thinking is still a live option because of history too. Right. And, and one of the things she talks about is, uh, and I think this is part of the thing that I mentioned to you the last time we talked about it is she, she questions um, uh, our kind of postmodern uh, sense that trauma is more real than anything else. Oh, I do remember this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and suggests that um, the sort of the postmodern or modern reading of, of, of female Christian mystics tends to be a reading that um, psychologizes and traumatizes them. Right. Uh, um, and, and says, well, the reason why these mystics are having these experiences is because of a certain kind of trauma in their past or, or because they're working to resist patriarchy in, in these ways or, or their Looney Tunes, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And, and, um, Amy Hollywood, who wrote the book, is like, you know, or we could we could take what they're saying seriously. And and yeah. we can say, um, even if we're not willing to say we take what they're saying seriously, there is a God, we can say um, they don't seem to be describing their experiences as traumatic. They exp- They seem to be describing their experiences as erotic and joyful and all of this stuff, you know, and, and she makes this interesting claim that, you know, maybe we can begin to think of joy as also an experience of the real, you know, not to say trauma isn't, but like, she just questions the, the impulse to say what is really real is the traumatic and everything else is sort of illusory, you know, she just, wants to trouble that but anyway it's an interesting book the many of the essays i find very fascinating she writes she works through the the jesus aside wound discourse oh yeah which is which is always fun in a a chapter that's called this glorious slit (laughs) which is uh you know what what some of the lady mystics call call the side wound as they're as they're eating it out um in their (laughs) visions right and uh and 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 she ends up kind of being like yeah i mean like on one hand we could have this really edgy reading of of sort of um lesbian nuns and and she's like and that's fine she's like i'm i'm cool with that or or she's like or we can once again take some of this very seriously and 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 instead speak of the the nuns mystical encounter with jesus's um uh queer body Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where, where, where there, where she's kind of like, I'm, cause she's like, I'm gonna be honest. Most of these nuns are really erotically into all of Jesus's body. Yeah. Both his vagina slit and his, you know, and the fact that he is a man, like they like all of that. And, and so like, he's got this weird, queer, strange body that, that elicits erotic desire and devotion and the wounds of love, you know, like, like in these medieval mystics. 
and she's like it's pretty cool like but remember like if you were to describe to the nuns yeah you're getting hot for jesus they'd look at you like you were fucking insane like well of course i'm not you know like like that's not because it's just not part of their vocabulary and amy hollywood's always like we got to try to speak using their vocabulary rather than you know rather than assume that we understand their experiences better than they do that's just not true we can learn you know from from the way they describe their experiences but what's really interesting about this this is this is my i'm sorry i'm just talking to you about books but i these are things i think you'd find interesting the last chapter in this book is a chapter on um, Meister Eckhart. Oh, yeah. Who, who I, you know, one of these days I'm just going to have to read all of because I, I just find him, every time I read a thing about him or even by him, I'm always like, this guy's so brilliant. Like, who is this guy? But he, Meister Eckhart uh, delivers this sermon um, where on, on the Mary and Martha text. Mm-hmm. Where, where, like, you know, when Mary, where Martha is running around keeping the household and Mary is laying at, at Jesus's feet and stuff like this, he delivers this sermon on the Mary and Martha text where he essentially says, um, it's actually Martha who made the better choice. Yeah. Um, and, and talks about Martha's uh, decision to, to incorporate the two highest possible aspects of the christian life contemplation and service you know mm-hmm. whereas mary is actually too um uh um uh immature Mar- mary mary only works with contemplation and chooses to abandon service and meister eckhart sort of casts this as this immature stop in the in the christian spiritual life and so martha uh, the, and jesus has to encourage mary you know, to, to keep going. And, and that's Ooh. why, that's why he, he says that when it's really Martha, who is the higher disciple. Um, and, and then he says in the sermon, um, he, he says, uh, how does he put it? He says, um, remember, uh, the will of the Trinity is for the son to be born in the soul of every believer. Hmm. And then he says uh, in this sermon, and the son is born in the soul in every believer whenever justice is enacted. I like that. Wow. I was like 13th century. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's such an, so I say that because what an interesting thing, huh? Like, what is what a cool uh, way of putting it. But also, that's like the presence of Jesus enacting sanctification. Right. Like the stuff that I'm into, you know, right now. And so I'm like, oh, I have to read Meister Eckhart for my dissertation. Like, like that sounds really, you know, the, 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 the son being born in the soul. You know, uh, and and it's only in acts of justice that the son is born in the soul, and which is part of why he he declares that Martha, you know, Martha has the son born in her soul. She mm-hmm. has combined combined contemplation and and service or or works of justice. So there you go. That's my that's my Amy Hollywood Meister Eckhart story. Yeah, I like that a lot. 
Yeah. I cool. yeah. Yeah. I I've seen a lot of re-readings of the Mary and Martha story, like that specific vignette, because um parable moment in the gospel just because like over and over again as i was growing up we got the like don't be busy like martha make sure you're making time to to uh, to be contemplative like mary mm-hmm. and uh, and i find that to just be such a boring sermon because we we find pastors find a way to do it over and over and over again of like our world is so busy these days so make sure that you are planning in and setting in your schedule 15 minutes for jesus every morning um which is not is a very uh history one solution to a history Mm -hmm. two problem right Mm -hmm. there you go um yeah yeah on the one hand like if you're calendaring things like putting it on your calendar is a is a helpful start but also maybe wonder why you need the calendar not to say that calendars aren't helpful and important and like we kind of have to live by them in the world that we're in but like question why there is one yeah yeah and i i find myself as somebody who um it, it, it is like a traditional Martha from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always like it when she's vindicated. I'm like, yes, that's what we're doing. Because I mean, people will go to to the extent of like really insulting Martha's character as they're like reading into the parable, and I'm like, I don't know if that's where we need to be. Um, yeah, I I wonder about like the different gloss of justice between Meister Eckhart and what we think of justice today sure sure uh he's got i'm he's i'm sure has different ideas in mind right although meister eckhart you know as in terms of his career like he uh isn't you know he's sort of understood as this like like his pastoral career is sort of very um uh 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 concrete and down to earth mm. And so, like, you know, he works with, like, uh, not the, <laughs> it's not the Society of Friends, that's the Quakers. But, like, he there, there's this, like, you know, like, kind of group he he starts that has a name sort of like that, where it's, you know, lots of different, like, lay women um, nuns or, or like, like, lay women who are interested in the contemplative lifestyle or lay men who are interested in the contemplative lifestyle and stuff like that. And, and teaches them and leads them and you know, it's a lot of working class stuff. And so I think there's a sense in which the gloss is certainly different, but that it's not so far-fetched. Dorothy Zola loves Meister Eckhart. You know, um, I could see that, yeah. Yeah, and, and and really sees, she sees a lot of his sort of mystical vision, you know, as really a, an important aspect of the way she mobilizes mysticism for resistance in the world and liberation in the world. Um, and so like, there's a, uh, I'm sure Meister Eckhart scholars would get cranky with her over that, but Zola is also like, eh, we're, we're being creative here. What, what do you want? You know? Right. You can be inspired by somebody without having to be in lockstep with what they were saying. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and then yeah. the last book that I'm actually going to reread again. Uh, cause I read, read it, I read it the first time my first semester we're, re- we're rereading it for another class next week is the politics of piety by Saba Mahmood. Oh uh, yeah. I remember you talking about this one too. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is the one 
where the she's a she's a Muslim anthropologist and she does kind of a big ethnographic study on Muslim women. I want to say in Cairo. Hmm. Um, but I might be wrong about the location. It's around that location. And and it's a really cool book. But like in it, she sort of comes to this this actually rather fascinating conclusion that like Western Western feminist categories actually obscure what these women are doing. Right. Uh, And, and they get in the way. And so like kind of embedded notions of, of subjectivity, embedded notions of liberation, embedded notions of even patriarchy um, obscure the, the religious and spiritual and political agency that these Muslim women in this context do have and what they are interested in as subjects. And, and it got all this really fascinating pushback. Like when it, when it was, when it was written years ago by, by these different like feminist scholars, like Saba Mahmoud has, you know, gone rogue. She's, she's turned her back on whatever, like, you know, are we really to believe that these, that these obviously oppressed Muslim women um, are able to decide, you know, in their, in full freedom, the life that they live, you know, and Saba Mahmoud's like, I mean, according to these women, yes. So (laughs) like, like, I guess you can go tell them, but uh, uh, my job was to study them on their own merits. And I've discovered that, some of the paradigms that I come came in with um, fail to do their perspective justice and fail right. to do it, to do it justice. And I do. And, and I love reading the book the first time. And I'm so excited to read that book in light of Chakrabarty now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I, the first time I read it, I was like, Ooh, yeah, this is, I can understand why this would piss off certain people. But this is, I think, Saba Mahmood is dead right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like everything can't be culturally constructed except for feminist notions of liberation. Right. Feminist notions of liberation can't be the one universal in a sea of, of cultural constructs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, did you have other thoughts to add? No, no, go for it, go for it. I, what really strikes me about all this is that um, there's a really similar lesson being learned over and over again, which is that um, <laughs> that that enlightenment thinking is constructed and that our struggle against enlightenment thinking is something that we are constructing against the construct. So I so feminists pushing back against um, the patriarchal categories that were like crystallized in the enlightenment are fighting on the enlightenment's terms. Right. Um, as we're struggling against concepts of race that are like deeply ingrained in the U S society. Well, those concepts of race were constructed by the enlightenment. And so we often fight against them on the enlightenment's terms. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we have these studies. We have, we look at these people when you start to consider 
uh, people from from cultures around the world that are not at, as tightly in the grip of the Enlightenment as Western cultures are for the most part. Or when you look at people pre-Enlightenment, you start to and you take them seriously, right? You don't you don't force your lens on that, even if you think it is a more informed lens than the typical Enlightenment lens, even if you think you're really free from the Enlightenment. When we start to take people seriously, we find the ways in which all of our lenses are still constructed around um, fighting against this like dominant thought in like Western schooling. Mm -hmm. uh, in, I, I, I find that a lot of the academics that I follow on Twitter um, <laughs> and people that I, people that I am learning from when I'm actually learning from people on Twitter are people who um often find that the academy is so limiting because it is despite uh despite like funding for different and new projects and and kind of new ideas it's still so limited by the enlightenment mindset that is like there in the very structure of how the academy works Mm -hmm. in that that history one kind of way because the academy is is caught in that too and you really have to fight for different ways of knowing that are not those ways of knowing. Um, so the Academy is a lot more comfortable if you're going to write about the uh, maybe like queering medieval mystics. Um, they're like, oh yeah, sure. Because like we know more than they know. The Academy is a lot less comfortable when you're like, well, let me like sit with the mystics and learn from them because you right. can't really quantify that. You can't hold that in your hand and, and examine yeah. it. Uh, yeah, I, 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 what I have to stop myself from doing is being like the enlightenment was the greatest sin of all time. Cause that's not true. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it is like a really limiting mindset and is, is kind of designed to be, I mean, it's designed to say we can do, these are things that we can manage by logic and we are prioritizing that. And we are doing that to the exclusion of what we see as these kind of spooky other things. Right. Um, but, and, and that takes us far, right? But also it, um, severs our connections with creation. Uh, it severs our connections with one another and it, it prohibits us from forming new connections. It severs our connection with the past. It makes the past this like demon haunted world, right? I ran into that a lot in doing my dissertation and, and thinking about Carl Sagan. Um, Sagan, would use a lot of um, the discoveries of science and then use that to talk kind of in a mystical key, mm -hmm. but is, but is not connected back to the history of mysticism or uh, he was raised Jewish and then was atheist later in his life. Um, but like no connection to Jewish mysticism. There's like, there's a tradition he could have pulled from and then didn't. Whereas Eddington uh, was a Quaker, lifelong Quaker, um, and would see these kind of things that stirred mysticism up in him in theoretical physics and astrophysics, and then would then use that for mystical contemplation within the Quaker tradition. Mm. And so you end up with these two people who, um, one is like a fully an enlightenment man because like, Hey, they've been to the moon and put robots on Mars. Right. You know, like I, and have also seen, um, seen the lived in the world where nuclear war felt like a daily threat and, um, 
So it's seen like the positives and the negatives of what science can do and believes that science should then only be used for the positive, but is so entrenched in that enlightenment worldview that he can in no way question uh, what like cannot fight nuclear armament on any terms other than enlightenment terms, you know? Right. Right. Uh, and Eddington dies before, before a lot of this happens. Um, but, but Eddington is able to like help get Einstein out of Germany before the Holocaust and help to work across um, borders to like prove general relativity. Like he, Eddington is able to, dive into topics at hand without then needing to fight them on enlightenment terms because he has access to another way of thinking, which is not anything I argued in my dissertation, but if I rewrote it now, I would. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I mean, I just find that like, this is something we come back to over and over again because I, because it feels almost like the Babylonian exile, you know, like if you don't know the Babylonian exile, there's a lot that you're missing in the old Testament Mm -hmm. because you're missing how it's structured. You're missing when it was constructed. You're missing the like key theological question that a lot of the canon as we have received it is kind of focused around. Um, And it's the same thing for, I mean, any scholarship post enlightenment, right? Is that like, this is, this is the thought, the process that, that structures how we look at the world and it excludes things and it's answering only a few specific questions. I mean, like within those questions are a lot of knowledge, but it's a very specific way of knowing. And and I find myself so frustrated that like that's all I could receive, that that's like the the worldview I had available to me. And when you start thinking outside of that worldview, people look at you like you are from an ep- episode of the X-Files. You know, they look at you like you are talking about a conspiracy theory or are into some weird shit. And that's not there. Right. It's just a different way of knowing. Why are we doing this? Well. Anyway, that's my rant. That's my thought. That's my rant. I like it. I like it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's going on. I, I you know, I, I like thinking about that stuff. If I was smarter, I'd write stuff on it, you know, and think about how how it could work for uh, a more theological, theologically oriented, you know, project. Mm. But. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I mean, if you had like 10 years in academia, if you had like a career in academia ahead of you, this could go on your like to read list, you know? That's true. That's true. I, I'd like a career in academia, but I don't know. Well, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Well, and I keep on coming back to the fact that like, boy, you would have to have such a specific type of church in order to have these conversations. Like conversations like this are intriguing to me. They're like life-giving to me. They like shape and form who I am as a Christian. Like this is discipleship to me. But uh, like you you would need to gather a very specific group of people who also find this to be uh, like building, creating sanctification in us you know a lot of people will be like i don't know what just happened which is is not bad right like the body has many parts and many gifts and they're all needed but yeah i continue to think of like the churches that i get appointed to and how like what feeds me is not what feeds them 
Yeah, you just need to have different outlets. That's what I read. You know, I need to have different outlets. Most of the folks in my life, you know, both either in churches or, you know, like on like the conference level, you know, this is all almost meaningless or or like totally unhelpful to them, Mm. you know, which is fine. Like whatever, Uh, that's fine. I don't always understand the desire to you know not have this stuff right like that was always a fun and annoying uh comment uh from some of our colleagues at seminary yeah that's all fine but what does this mean practically and then i go it means use your fucking imagination right (laughs) that's that's what it means it means uh use the information that you've just been given and make it practical in your brain right yeah, I and and I I know we like we beat up on people who who don't like this in seminary, um, but I'm trying to think of the way that I want to phrase this. We would talk so much in seminary about needing to like reform our imaginations, right? Like, mm-hmm. and talking about the way that like. I mean, like if we were in particular Marxist circles, talking about like capitalism has has changed our imagination and how we need to like reset it. Right. But like that's what good theology does. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's what these conversations do. And I totally get it. If like that's not what you're getting from Meister Eckhart, that's not what you're getting from these critical takes on things. That's not what you get from scholarship. But but don't disregard it just because you don't get that from it. Right. Find a conversation partner that helps you draw these things out or just respect the fact that like some people for some people, this is helping them understand the world better. And um, and also that like you would probably benefit from this, too. You just have to put a different amount of work into it. Yeah. 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 I yeah. at the same time, like people are doing a lot of good work. So I. I I hate to be like, oh, you don't know anything when I know that people are out there trying their best. That is very nice of you. <laughs> Thanks. That's very nice of you. Well, that's good. Well, <laughs> do, do this. I'm sorry. I was such a I just kind of talked constantly about books. But do you want to wrap this this main episode up and we can do a mini episode? Yeah, this feels like a good stopping point. So sure. Sounds good. All right. Well, friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor? is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and fight the Enlightenment, friends. I'm so tired. I hear you. I hear you. It's a lot. Okay, there we go.